It's wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me on Product Leader's Journey. Thank you, Raul. It's been a long time and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it has been. And, uh, you know, Stu, you are one of the topmost experts in cybersecurity. You've built a number of companies and taken them through successful exits. So you're a serial entrepreneur. And so what's your latest venture? Well, in the cybersphere, it's an AppSec company uh, where we're using AI to predict and prevent code level vulnerabilities, which let's face okay. it, 100% of cyber attacks are based on flaws in the code, either mm -hmm. lack of features in the code or fundamental flaws inside the code vulnerabilities. So Quiet AI uh, is the name of the company. I used to be called Shift Left, but we just rebranded. Okay. And so, yeah, we're driving the future really of AppSec in with AI. Okay, great. And so, you know, one of the things that was always very fascinating about the cybersecurity space is that, you know, in, in many cases, when we build products to solve problems for customers, we try to make our products better and differentiated against competitors. But in the cybersecurity space, you've got the added dynamic of an active adversary that's trying to defeat your product. Yes. Right? So there's a, a level of complexity beyond what you see in typical industries. And so you have to think about how do you stay a step ahead of competitors. And with what we're seeing with AI, isn't it natural that the bad guys are also going to be using AI? 100%. Um, I just had a talk about this actually last week. Not a lot of people are talking about that though. Hmm. I mean, like even in our space, which is a little disturbing, like sure, we'll talk about like worm GPT to create sort of a fake fish that works really well, or, you know, auto GPT to help maybe automate some hacking or pen test GPT, things like that. But that's where a lot of it stops. And we all know hmm. the bad guys yeah. use this tech way faster and quicker than the good guys do. And yeah. so my, my goal always when we talk about this topic is to really orient everybody to this world that, look, the bad guys already know this stuff. The bad guys are already leveraging it. How are you as the good guy going to leverage it? So for us as Cyril, you know, sort of entrepreneur types, we have to be looking at the, the ways they're going to be leveraging AI and machine learning mm -hmm. generatively and predictively, and then finding solutions that we can leverage AI to defeat that same AI. Mm -hmm. And, and I, it will be AI to AI. I have no doubt about it. Um, just a question of when. Yeah. And so I'm constantly looking for the right founding team and the right founding idea and the right founding technology that can make a big difference and stay ahead of the adversary. You, you know this from my experience at Silence. Silence was a truly predictive and preventative play, right? We took a look at mm -hmm. every single execution element that was about to get executed on by the CPU. And we said, is this blob safe or is it unsafe, right? Is yeah. it is it a hack or is it normal? And if it was if it was bad or a hack, we would just block it. We wouldn't allow the CPU to actually execute those instructions. And that was truly predictive and preventative. And unfortunately, I feel like the industry has just lost its way completely. It is so mm. focused on detect and respond. Mm. Everybody's thrown their hands up and given up on the idea that prevention is even possible, even though I've proven it already with silence. And I want to yeah. prove it again now in the code space. Yeah. And ultimately now in the AI versus AI space um, with some 
sort of cool idea down the road. Yeah. So you mentioned silence and I want to touch upon that. I want to go there, but let's rewind the clock a little bit even before that. And you were at Ernst & Young and advising a lot of large organizations and C-level executives about cybersecurity risks. And so that was a, a services kind of a play, if you will. So how did you transition from services around security to products around security? Though, yes, Ernst & Young was very services oriented. We actually built our own products inside of Ernst & Young as well. Hmm. It was something okay. called, um, uh, what was it, uh, uh, e-security online or something like that. I can't, it okay. was a threat-based threat sort of thing. And, you know, we helped build some of that. Um, but I was honored and privileged to to help be that trusted advisor to countless mm. companies around the globe in not just detecting a malicious threat actor inside of, of their company, but also to be able to respond and then prevent um, that threat actor in the future. Um, we did a lot of pen testing, which of course yeah. required us to automate a lot of the tools because there, there was no like, mm. you know, simple free tools to use. We had to build our own. So that software development experience came in really handy. And did that lead to founding uh, Foundstone? Well, yeah, in, in part, you know, I had uh, started writing the book Hacking Exposed mm. uh, before I had joined Ernst & Young, probably a year or two before joining Ernst & Young at uh, InfoWorld when I was uh, an analyst there and helped run the labs. And so I started writing the book and then, yeah, at in my tail end of my career at Ernst & Young, I published the book, September of 99. And again, that book was all about finding the techniques of the bad guy, the tools and techniques and, and procedures and protocols of, of the bad guys and then documenting it for the good guys to learn about mm. the admins to learn about. So we, I published that book, which was a natural, that's like a pen tester's dream book, right? Yeah. And everybody um, just soaked it all up. There wasn't a lot of material on that, especially in a really recipe driven approach, you know, like do yeah. step one, then two, then three. We yeah. made it very scientific and not, not as much of an art form. So it appealed to the masses and it was a natural, the next step to say, well, gosh, why couldn't we just automate this whole methodology into mm -hmm. a tool that does it automatically for you and scans your networks, looking for the problems, helping you identify what patches to fix or what configurations to change, et cetera. And that's, was the beginning of Foundstone. And, um, you know, one of the things, so Foundstone was a, a vulnerability assessment. And one of the uh, really clever things that I thought you guys did at Foundstone was defining that one single metric, that score that said encapsulated all the aspects of risk and whether there were countermeasures in place or not. Really, that became a very objective way of just assessing the health of, a, of an environment. And so yes. how did you guys come up with that? Well, we knew that one of the real weaknesses of the entire cyber programs in all these companies was creating a priority system. Because we would, mm. what we did very well at Foundstone was create problems for you, right? As the mm. administrator, we, we, yeah. we told you everything how to fix right. your environment. And it usually wasn't a handful of things. It was usually hundreds and thousands or hundreds of thousands of recommendations. Well, that creates a lot of noise. Yeah. And it's very challenging to understand, well, what's more important than another? And so we said, well, look, what if we could come up with a score that represented not just the vulnerability, but the exposure that it provides, right? The mm -hmm. threats that are out there today, the exploitability, like all of these elements. And we put it in one place for you to measure and then now manage. Um, 
Um, and that is what, you know, long before CVSS scores and all this stuff came about, we had, we had the found score and the found score ended up being incredibly successful in getting defense teams to mm. see the value of applying our technology over anything else that was out there at the time, like Qualys or, or yeah. Nessus or any of this other stuff. Yeah. But that, that score, that was a very effective way of changing the language that people use, that customers used in uh, just def defining their environment. And so yeah. have you seen that? I've not seen something similar like that found, found score in other industries when we build products. So what's your advice for people thinking about building products to identify that one metric that customers can start to embrace and use and change the language around how you talk about a problem and a solution? Well, this goes back to, I'll tell you, with silence, you know, we did a lot of things wrong, but we, we mm -hmm. did a few things right. And one of the things we did there is we, we really understood how to demonstrate um, two things. One was self-evident value. So when we did our demos, mm. you knew immediately the value of our solution, like the way that we did the demo. Yeah. Then the second part is we created a sense of urgency. These two elements tend to be the most compelling elements in a demo for you as, as someone that's creating a solution. So you always want to try to orient to, into those two possible places. And you know, that self-evident value is, is hard. Like mm. not everybody can find a way to present their solution in a real self-evident way. Self-evident meaning like you don't need to be there to explain it. Like you can yeah. just, you just literally sound is off and you present the demo. Yeah. If you, if you can do that, then you have an incredibly compelling solution. And then the, the icing on the cake is can that demo again, no sound, yeah. uh, create a sense of urgency for you for the customer. And if it does, yeah. well, man, you have the one, two punch, like yeah. you've got everything you need there. So to me, that's really where a lot of the industry falls down is we can't clearly articulate the value in a self-evident way. And we can't create that sense of urgency. So, you know, that found score, that scoring system, and a lot of folks mm. you know, give up on it because it's not an easy formula to sort of come through. On. Yeah, that's very well said. I mean, the two things that I got out of that are self-evident value. How does that then create a sense of urgency for the customer? And that's exactly. really powerful because a lot of demos that we end up seeing, they only scratch the surface on how does the product work and what are the 10 clicks that you need to do to get from one screen to the other screen and the, the dashboard of reports and widgets that you see. But that's not an effective product demo at all. No, it's just feature vomit is what I call it. <laughs> yeah. So so let's uh, drill down into Foundstone a little bit. What were your key learnings starting from $0 million, building the company up, and then a successful exit with McAfee? Well, Foundstone was, you know, not what I would call sort of high growth. You know, we were, what, a five-year company before mm -hmm. we got acquired. We were a services-only company for the first year and a half maybe mm. two years, something like that. And we had extreme tension between the services arm and the product arm. Mm. And that's a, a whole nother story for another day, probably. But that's a, that's typically what you find is if you have a services arm, they see their value as being right. people in the mix and making decisions for their customers and helping them yeah. along uh, day to day. And the technology is a threat to that. Yeah. So you really need to build a services team that is 
highly oriented to automation and technology. And if you can't do that, then you're going to have this friction. And so mm -hmm. we often had that at Boundstone, actually. But the really interesting part for us was it took a lot longer to build the tech, the customer profile and an MVP, mm -hmm. something that's minimally viable. But once we did, once we got to the appliances, we put the software on the appliances. And once we got that sort of starting to ship on its own, that's where we really started to scale. And a little known fact about Foundstone is we were still over 50% services when we got acquired in terms of mm, revenue. Yeah. So we were still, you would maybe be safe to call us a services dominant play, even though our tech mm. was what was getting all the headlines and what was, you know, compelling a lot of customers. Um, we still had a very healthy services practice too. But is that something that you would do again? Like, I, you know, was that the playbook at silence because you started with services and yes. then pivoted into product? Yes. So how does that uh, transition I learned happen. my lessons. I learned <laughs> my lessons. Yeah. Like uh, with silence, I knew what not to do. So mm. by that point, we as well, we had about a two, two and a half year run where we had zero product revenue. It was all services. Mm -hmm. But the the big change that I had to make for silence for the services to be successful were the people. Like mm. I had to hire specifically for a product-centered company. Yeah. That the individuals that were coming in to help build our services practice had to be really oriented to the technology as the ultimate value creation of the company yeah. and not necessarily adding more bodies onto the services practice. By doing that, I felt like we set ourselves up to, to have the highest chance of success of doing the teeter-totter. Because mm -hmm. you always start with like, in a service to product play, you always start with 100% service. Right. And then eventually the product comes and comes to supplant it. And the moment this supplant happens, uh, services teams really get nervous unless you've hired them in specifically to tell them that this is what's going to happen. Like, yeah. and don't be afraid because yeah. what we're going to do is at a certain point, we're going to make sure that we always grow with the product. So I always said it was like a 90-10. I wanted a 90-10 mix. So if, if we're doing 900 million in product revenue, I want to do, you know, 100 million in services, you know, no yeah. doubt about that stuff like yeah. that. And then we would just grow along with product. Yeah. And so both at Foundstone and Silence, what was the growth curve in terms of hiring? Because you are, you know, in a startup phase, you are rapidly hiring. And, you know, how do you then uh, make sure that you are hiring the right people for the right role at the right time? So how did that shape your perspective around hiring? I got to say, I still have PTSD from those years, especially in silence. <laughs> silence, we, I believe, are still on record as the fastest growing cybersecurity company, um, yeah. at least by raw revenue dollars. So we had, we basically went from zero in product revenue to 100 million in ARR in two years and two months. Nice. Yeah. So in that time Fantastic. frame, and so there was a seven month period in there yeah. where we went from 200 employees to 800 employees. Wow. So in seven months, we hired 600 people and we on. So we sourced them, recruited them, onboarded them, enabled them, etc. How many mistakes do you think we made in that process? That I mean, just the scale of growth, you're bound to make some mistakes there just because, you know, you're not going to have a 100% batting average. 100%, exactly. And it, it's it, and I don't mean to say like it was a mistake in hiring this person or that person. That's not what I'm saying. 
Yeah. What I'm saying is that individual's talents, skills, mm. right, were misplaced inside mm. of the existing infrastructure. They were never going to be successful in certain cases, right? And we didn't have the insight, the quantitative measure. Like you talked mm. about the found score, right? Yeah. We didn't have the found score for human beings. We mm. still don't to this day. And it's it's large part what's motivated me to, to start another company, but we'll get to that later maybe. Ultimately, we as human beings are incredibly complex and complicated. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we all boil down into incredibly pattern-driven behaviors that are highly predictable. The problem is okay. you have to be able to measure as many of these characteristics as humanly possible to get the highest predictability out of that machine, that hmm. human machine. And so that's what I'm, I'm really keen to do uh, as I go forward in my career, is to quantify both traits and cognitive biases in a way mm -hmm. that allows us to predict success, failure, or struggle in a specific position in a specific company. And to me, I'm just passionate about it because of all the PTSD I had. Yeah. So uh, would love to drig, drill into this a little bit deeper. Uh, when you talked about creating that score, when it comes to humans, can that objectivity be brought to defining and capturing the traits of a person? Because humans are very subjective in nature. We we, we change our behavior and our way of thinking depending upon the context and the environment and the people that we are with. And so how can you codify people in that sense? What, one of my best examples, I'm going to give a demonstration. Okay. To you. And, and forgive me if I've done this to you already, Rahul, but maybe for the audience, they haven't heard this one. So I want you to ask me a question and I'm going to respond. Okay. Okay. And I'm gonna um, I'm gonna write down something here real quick, uh, just to prove to you that like you know I'm not just agreeing with whatever you say. And so the question is, where did you grow up? So you just asked me that question, like, okay, Stu, so where did you grow up? Well, I grew up mostly in Guam, uh, about eight years of my childhood in Guam, and then uh, Hawaii, and then Colorado. Okay. Colorado Springs in particular. And a lot of people will naturally just ask the question, well, was your family in the military? Mm, right? mm. It's, it's almost 99% of the time. Interesting. So yeah. simply by, by stating those three or four things, 99% yeah. of the time, like it, it, they'll ask, oh, well, your family in the military. Huh. And look, you know, my family was not in the military. That's the short answer, right? Mm. We all are very pattern driven. We see the world based on our perception and our constructs. And by that makes it very, very predictable. Okay. But the problem is we don't have the data to predict it. And it's the collection of the data, which is the most important. So you're to your question, which is how do you provide an objective measure onto human behavior. That's the trick. I think once we can get to there, and we are close actually to be able to measure that, and there's multiple ways to measure this. There's sort of the direct measure, which is asks you questions, self-report, self-assessment. Yeah, yeah. Another way is to simply uh, watch your behavior, you know, how you type, what you type, you know, what you do, how you do it, blah, blah, blah. You can sort of measure all of that. Third is to ask, you know, peers around you, people that know you well, like, well, mm -hmm. what's Rahul like, you know, working with them? and blah, 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 which of course they have a subjective measure of your objective measure, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then there's like public private data, like, well, what can we collect on Raul? That'll tell mm. us things about him. Um, social media, you know, uh, yeah. private data, blah, blah. And you bring all those things together and you have an incredibly powerful way to yeah. determine and predict almost, well, how will Raul act in this set setting, in this project with this mm. individual? I mean, I've had the 
pleasure of working with you, right? At McAfee, I've seen you mm -hmm. in Dynamics, you know, executive team and otherwise. And I, I don't know you inside and out, but I can certainly probably predict nine out of 10 times, like how you're going to react to a certain event because I've, mm -hmm. I've gotten to know you, you know, mm -hmm. and not, I'm not saying that I would be able to guess the exact answer and things that you would say. No, no, no. Right. But like, well, how you might respond to this person saying these things or that kind of thing. And th that's in large part just comes from a lifetime of experience of working with a lot of different yeah. people and understanding human be behavior. And so if we can, if we can teach a computer, teach a system to learn about the traits and biases. And this is another part of it. This cognitive bias part, I think is really, really fascinating. You know, we are all driven mm -hmm. by these biases day in and day yeah. out. Right? They're yeah. invisible to us. We rarely think about them, much less quantify them. And yet they, they drive us every day, invisibly, unconsciously. We're bound to them. We're almost slaves to them, in effect. Yeah. So we really have to start to make ourselves aware of these biases. You know, I tend to have what I call entrepreneur bias, hmm. which is that, well, because I found success in a couple, three things, I think I can make anything successful. Hmm. Well, that's just not true. Like, yeah. that's just not true. But that's what I think more times than not. Right. Um, and, and that's that's incorrect bias. Like, you, you, should, you should have, at a minimum, be aware of it and ideally feed that into your decision-making system. Hmm. But there's countless on others. You know, there's Dunning-Kruger effect, there's spotlight bias. I mean, there's like 200 documented cognitive biases that were, that drive us unconsciously all the time. Now, what if you yeah. can measure all that? What if you can yeah. measure the traits, 200 plus professionality traits that make you successful in work? That to me is the next generation of the workplace. Yeah, and when you think about hiring and a lot of times we are making decisions on hiring based upon very short uh, interactions and short uh, amount of data and then how do you get that hiring decision right Spend so little time interviewing somebody and you think yeah. to yourself and you're pulling basically from your old experiences with which come from old biases right that you've built yeah. over time you know it largely boils down to hey Raul is he a good guy? Is he a good guy? Let's, is he, yeah, he's a good guy. All right, well, let's hire him, right? Like, yeah. what, what does that mean? He's a good guy or she's yeah. a good guy. Like, I mean, we have no way of quantifying that today, but it's absolutely possible. But we have, hmm. we have to put a lot of energy and effort into that quantification and measurability and then track it over time. And, and I think that, that the forefront really of machine learning AI on the predictive side is to apply to human behavior. Yeah. So that's where I think a lot of, a lot of the space has to go, you know, um, yeah. I mean, we've all done, you know, countless, what, once you hire somebody, then you're like, well, why isn't that, why aren't they working out? We do a 360, we do a nine box, you know, we do the annual reviews, monthly buy, right. whatever it is. Right. And you're stuck with people that are really not, they're not fitting in. They're not, you know, either whether it be culturally or hard skills based or whatever, they're just not working out and you need to take action, but you have no way to sort of explain it. You're just like, look, it's not working out. You know, I, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. We, we, we got to let you go. Or the position you're in, is just doesn't work. We got to yeah. eliminate the position, things like that. But there's no way to actually help people. I mean, imagine going to somebody that's really not working out and saying, look, it's not working out, but that's because you're here. Okay. Hmm. I'm going to tell you what, you go across the street to, to our competitor and you will thrive. Hmm. I can't say how many times it's silence. Like we would let somebody go because they weren't working hmm. out for us. They would go to a competitor, right? Like Sentinel hmm. One or CrowdStrike and they yeah. were, they were rock stars. Okay. Hmm. Rock stars. So, so was it that <clears throat> they weren't good? Or was it that they weren't good at silence? Yeah. Well, they weren't good at silence, right? Because yeah. yeah. 
the way our culture was, the way our our biases were aligned, the way our traits were aligned, it just didn't align well. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with it. Like it's it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just different, you know. And it you just want to find higher alignment. Yeah. You know, Jim Collins talks about some of that in his book, Good to Great, and saying, you know, you got to have the right people in the right seat on the bus. Yes. And that, that's what I think you're referring to, that you may not be in the right seat in the right bus at the right time. That's right. That's exactly yeah. it. That's what you want to find. Um, you want to, you want, but you need a system to do it. Yeah. You know, you, you need to find a system, a way of measuring that can be applied to everybody that allows for us to, you know, almost plot you on a graph. So we know, well, where are you aligned? You know, where's the overlap? Well, here's the company and here's you. Ah, okay, these positions inside this company would be great for you, mm. but not those other ones, not these ones here, yeah. right? So you don't want to put them in that spot. And yeah. it's not based on hard skills. It's not like, well, he's a good programmer. She's great with numbers. No, no, no. That That's a whole nother beast, right? Yeah. It's really about, you know, are we culturally aligning you to be successful inside of a project, inside of a team, inside of an organization? Yeah. To me, that's, that is the future. Yeah. So you've started uh, a few companies and you've built them up and, um, you know, there is a vision of what kind of company you want to build. And that goes back to a sense of culture that you talked about. Yes. So how do you define culture? And when you're starting a company, how do you have a vision for what kind of company you want to build? Well, the vision has <clears throat> to start first, for sure. Um, then you build the culture around it, I believe. Hmm. I mean, I've always set my visions to be very big, you know, like um, to prevent 100% of cyber attack. Yeah. You know, most people look at that and be like, yeah, you're just nuts. Like, you're just crazy. There's no such thing as 100%, much less can you prevent the stuff. But I usually set them pretty big. You know, silence mm. was to prevent attacks on everything under the sun, you know. Mm. And so you set a, a big, big vision so that people know that we got a lot of work to do and there's there's a lot of ground to make up. Um, but then you start to align to that vision um, mm. culturally. So, like, for me, these bigger visions of protection, prevention, uh, this is really what drives me and I'm such a mission-driven leader that that I always align to something that helps somebody else. Yeah. That to me is the ultimate purpose in life is to not just help yourself, but once you get to a place where you can help yourself is to help others. So helping others, protecting others that can't protect themselves was always a big, big driver mm -hmm. for me in the cybersecurity space. And so finding that, defining the culture that makes up that vision and mission, and then ensuring that you hire and align continuously to that culture. Now, just like you said, though, you can define the culture all you want, but I guarantee you, you have hundreds of cultures in your organization. <laughs> like just because you at the top say, this is how it is, the likelihood of 100% of that lower level getting aligned is is very slim. I mean, it falls off fast. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. and then all of a sudden you just have dozens and dozens and dozens of individual cultures. You could have a culture mm. by, by, by individual pairings on a team. You could have mm. your own culture. Right. And, and it's this aligning of all of these cultures. Yeah. It's the Holy Grail. That's what CEOs, I, I believe what CEOs strive for their whole careers is to align everybody to the same mission. And it's, it's this alignment of all these cultures. And that's why we call this the ethos of we, the culture of we, which is okay. we. Okay. So we've coined a new term in a new company called Wethos that does exactly this. Okay. Quantifies human trait behaviors as well as um, cognitive biases to measure individuals in specific projects and specific teams and aligning all of the cultures in an organization. And to me, yeah. 
If you can do that, you're getting the most out of every individual and every team, and you, you're getting the highest efficiency, effectiveness, and high performance that you can. Yeah, th that's very powerful. And, you know, there have been efforts or tools that have been used, and I've certainly taken some of those tests, and many people have. Uh, MBTI and DISC and, um, you know, they give you an assessment that you are an INFJ or ENTJ. And yes. there are probably tests and assessments that create some codification based upon certain criteria. So when you talk about Vithos, how yes. is that different or how is that better from the existing ways of assessing an individual? So let's talk about this. So traditionally, the way we've gone to quantify human behavior has been around yeah. what we call personalities, right? Right. So it's the ality of the person. And the personalities tend to be oriented to you personally, not professionally. Hmm. And a lot of the traits that you look for in a professional person at work are very different than you would look hmm. for in a person. Hmm. So let me just give you my my best, you know, one of my best examples, extroversion. So introversion, extroversion, yeah. right? That tends to be one of the MBTI things. Right. Now, you know, in my youth um, leading teams, I used to think, well, gosh, you know, wh where do we want extroverts? Well, we want extroverts in the sales position. That's for sure. Yeah. Right? You want yeah. them to be super social and want to go talk to people and make everybody laugh, be the center of attention and stuff like that. I can tell you nine out of 10 of the most successful reps that I've ever seen hmm. are not extroverts. They're introverts. Hmm. Interesting. Absolutely. But, but, but do you really even care? I mean, do you, you know, at a certain point, you know, you realize it doesn't really matter. Those features are not, they might be fun to talk about at a party, like between right. you and I, like, oh yeah, I'm an introvert. You're an introvert. Aren't we cool together? Blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't help leaders and managers and quite frankly, teammates to yeah. engage with you any better, to be more effective and more high performing. You need to have things like, are you a, an effective communicator? Hmm. Do, do you, are you comfortable with conflict? You know, hmm. can you easily self-regulate, right? Your thoughts, yeah. your emotions. Yeah. These are, these are the things that help, um, you know, how open are you to, yeah. to ideas and cultures and opinion? I mean, these elements are what define the success of a team in a professional work setting. And so that's where we really splinter off from this sort okay. of personality matrix to this okay. really professionality matrix. Now there are some overlaps for sure, <clears throat> mm -hmm. but there are distinctive cognitive biases in particular and traits that are very, very different mm. that, that we focus on. Okay, Stuart, that's interesting. So what are the attributes that you measure at Vithos when it comes to how a person appears professionally in the work environment? Well, at Vithos, we really do believe that there are some core traits that you have to measure very, very effectively. Once you can measure okay. those highly effectively and predictably, then you can offshoot from those core. And the four core that we've been um, able to quantify are what we call uh, sort of ideas, uh, okay. sort of uh, you know, relational, okay. action, and order. So ideas and relational are all about how people make decisions. Okay. Action and order is how people act on decisions or enact them or create them or like execute on them. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's how we make decisions and how we <laughs> execute on decisions. And it bifurcates, okay, into mm -hmm. those four sort of categories. And we have a scale, uh, a one to five scale, which ends up being more like a 10 scale because we do half increments and we measure you on those, on those elements. So let's say we have a team mm -hmm. and they are high like ideas. So there are five on ideas. 
Mm -hmm. and there are five on rationality and there are okay. five on action. In other words, they, they don't, you know, they're not the ones performing the action, right? They're the ones sort of planning the action, trying to, uh, trying to get other people to take the actions and stuff like this. Yeah. And you get them all in the same room. I mean, insanely predictable what's going to mm. happen. They're going to have great conversations. Everybody's going to agree on, on how to solve a problem and no one's going to take action on it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And, and so you need diversity in that team. Yeah. Somebody yeah. that's like a two in ideas and, you know, maybe a three in action or a hmm. two in action. Like you need to have diversity in your team to be a fully functioning, executable machine. Yeah. And, and that's what we do. So we allow you to understand each individual their natural styles, we call it the Wethos styles, Okay. Their natural styles at work, how you work best and give you the opportunities to stretch obviously from your natural style. But we, but by understanding each other's natural styles, we know now how to adjust our own behavior. Yeah. I've had plenty of examples where we've had a tough decision to make, let's say. Okay. Yeah. And we, I know the team that's going to make this decision. And I know that certain people, like I, I have one in my group, that's like a super high five. You can't get higher five on the, on the rational or the relational side than this person. So when we decide we make the decision that something has to happen, they're always going to be thinking about the individual's feelings and how mm. the decision will impact everyone else's feelings and everything mm. else. So I have to be very cognizant of that and help them through go that extra mile so that they feel like that um, that sort of relational side is not being ignored or brushed under mm. the rug or, you know, they're not being minimized. The value of that individual is not being minimized. That is all being a part of it. And by doing so, now you have a unified decision-making platform. You know, Colin Powell was famous. I think you probably, uh, did you see, do you remember he was uh, yes. yeah, a keynote? Yeah, at, he was the keynote. That's right. Yeah. And, and he was famous <laughs> for telling everybody in his cabinet, right? Like, look, here's the thing. You can argue the idea all day long in this in setting environment. The moment you leave this room, yeah. the idea is your idea, not my idea. It's yeah. your idea. And, and you need to own it just as, as I do. Well, that is in large part, I believe, <laughs> the, the highly successful teams and effective teams can get to that place. The way to get to that place quicker is by understanding all of the natural styles and the way that people think hmm. in terms of making decisions <clears throat> and acting on the decisions. So. Yeah. So that's where Wethos really comes into play. It almost reimagines how work can be because you're not bound to a position or a title. Mm, you're mm. now bound to a project. So okay. just because you have the title of software engineer yeah. doesn't mean that you wouldn't be good at accounting. Maybe you'd mm. be great at accounting. I don't know. Yeah. Um, if you have a natural style of attention to detail as part of your coding <laughs> practice, well, you'd probably be good at accounting because you, you really get into numbers or you get into facts figures and you you know you you let the day get defined by rules etc well then you're going to go well in in any sort of job that values attention to detail hmm. so, so yeah you're moving away from the position and you're moving into the project does that make sense yeah, that makes sense. And when we talk about high-performing teams, now there's so much written and talked about building high-performing teams, but what you're saying here is you're codifying what it means to be a high-performing team yes. so that 
based upon the uh, individual behavioral assessment based upon those four axes so i'm just recapping what you mm-hmm. said mm-hmm. ideas relational action and order and mm-hmm. you know based upon the first two relate to how a decision is made and then the last two relate to how do you execute upon that decision so that really creates a much more objective view of building what it means to build a high performing team that yes. you need to have the diversity of individuals on that team across those four different axes yes and and you need the ability to <clears throat> to subjectively define high performing because yeah. you might have a company where they believe nope everybody's got to be the same and that's the way we high perform mm. okay fine so you believe everybody needs to be a five on all scales then define it as that or all ones on all scales or whatever yeah. the template might be that you believe now we believe a fully diversified cognitively diversified team is the most high performing potential team. Okay. Because you have all of the ingredients, you know, you have the ingredients to success. Now, whether or not you orchestrate those ingredients into a successful outcome is is really based on execution. Yeah. But but we can give you the roadmap. And so when we think about talent development in an organization, a lot of focus is really based upon identifying the gaps in skills that people have and then giving them the opportunities to close those gaps or those weaknesses but what you are talking about really goes to identifying the strengths that people have and putting them in positions to leverage those strengths in the right team for the right project exactly exactly it's it's basically <laughs> measuring the qualities of the individual whether it's strengths mm. or weaknesses is totally subjective like you're right you know, one, you know, sure, at silence, this was a weakness, but at Sentinel One, it was a strength. They loved it. Yeah. Like, it was yeah. great. It, it just totally depends. And, but it's really the qualities okay, of the individual. Yeah. So by measuring those qualities now, you can ultimately define the best successful team makeup uh, for mm. your organization or for your, your company. And, and to me, that, that is the future of work. And, and so that's where this sort of stream, uh, framework and structure really come into play is being able to define it and then measure it uh, over mm. time and uh, allow the organization to define success in their own way. Yeah. And so do you foresee a future where that Vitos style score that gets computed or identified with me as a professional worker, yeah. uh, can I take that Vitos style score and and take that from one company to another? Yes. And the, the, the answer is yes. So once you understand those elements of your um, professionality, yeah, you now can apply that to any other organization or more importantly, team that is hmm. measuring in that same construct. So you can know like, look, I'm not really working out well in this team because their mm. definition of success does not align to my natural style. Mm. But this team over in this department, in this inside the company does. And I think that I would really thrive in there. And we have a now objectively measurable way to prove that. Or, yeah. or we say, look, there's nobody really inside the company where I'm going to fit. But the company across the street very much aligns to my natural styles. And I'm going to go work for them on these three projects. Yeah. And, and worry less about the position and more about the project. That can apply across different geographies, across different styles of sizes of companies. And, so- and then you can understand how it relates to everyone else on your team or your project. And so how are, so this is a new company that you've launched? Yes, we, we've just launched it. Um, 
and we'll be sort of going more global with the company, but uh, we've now formalized it and it's, it's kicking off incredibly well. Very cool. Very cool. So wish you all the success with that. Thanks yeah. so much, Rahul. Yeah, really. Yeah. So going back to those two exits, you know, Foundstone getting acquired by McAfee, Silence getting acquired by BlackBerry, uh, going from a startup into a large company, how do you protect the hustle? What were your learnings and any advice that you can share on that? Yeah, protect the hustle. I like the way you put that. Um, that's hard. It's really hard. You know, and that that leads me actually, you know, to a book I'm I'm reading right now, mm. actually, which I think we could probably talk about, maybe argue about for quite some time. The book's called Burn the Boats. Okay. Uh, I got the name of Matt Higgins. The whole premise behind it is the historical reference to burning the boats and how meaningful it is to success. Mm. If there's always a plan B, the path of least resistance is often pursued. Mm. If there's no plan B, and the only way forward is through, then you're going to go through. Yeah. And yeah. I do believe there is something very powerful about that. So when you go into a large company where there's always plan B, I mean, yeah, you know, like you're pretty set. I mean, you know, your, your paycheck does not depend on this week's performance. Like, right. or next week or the week after. I mean, right. maybe, you know, in like a year or two, it might depend on it, but then, then how much hustle, I mean, then hustle has to be innate in you. Like it's not, yeah. it's, it's not a trait that can be generated. Yeah. It's, it's just either got to be in you or not in you. Anyway, so it makes it very challenging. The only way I've tried to do it, and you know, you could say marginal success, I guess, uh, fairly successful inside McAfee at least, was again centering around that mission mm. and making sure that you align the individuals that you're partnering with uh, to that mission, that they believe the same way. Yeah. I mean, if, if I had people on my team that sort of really didn't care about protecting people and actually wanted to just hurt people, well, then I, you know, it probably yeah. wouldn't be all that successful. But if I have people that are like there because I'm waking up every day because I want to protect my mom, my grandmother, my father, my daughter, my blah, blah, blah from getting hacked. Yeah. Man, there's a there's a drive then that comes from here, you know, not here. Yeah. You know, as you know, fights are fights are not one here. They're one here. Right. Yeah. Right through the heart. And, and, and that to me is where mission comes into play. Yeah. You can align that heart of the individual to to the outcome that you want and you have a powerful formula. You talked about mission so much and your inherent desire to help people who cannot help themselves. How did that get shaped? Was there any, you know, incidents growing up in Guam, Hawaii, Colorado, or throughout your life that, that shaped your perspective around people and helping people identify with a bigger mission? Yeah, yeah, I know there was, um, you know, when I was 19, I was on a commercial airlines flight that uh, blew a hole inside the fuselage and sucked nine people out of the plane. We, I was supposed to be in one of the seats that left the plane, but I turned down the upgrade at the last second um, on the flight. Wow from Honolulu to New Zealand. 19 years old, you know, the brain's still really forming. And I really go back to that, that moment in time. We ended up surviving, um, but really to this day, don't know how. We don't know how that plane got back safely, um, given all the parameters it was working on. But as, as after we landed and after all the investigation occurred, we realized that it was 100% preventable. Hmm. And, and this just didn't, I just couldn't quite compute this part. Here I went through a near-death experience, probably should have died at the age of 20, and and yet it was preventable? Like, hmm. 
I, it, I just couldn't quite like, how did we allow this to happen then? I don't, I, it just really, even to this day, I have a wow. hard time even articulating like, how did this happen? If it was preventable, I, I understand, you know, lightning bolt comes out of the sky and strikes you fine. You know, like, yeah, I mean, whatever, some force majeure nature of God, you know, whatever. Okay, fine. Yeah. Like this is all man-made stuff. Like, why can't we prevent this? And it was a hundred percent preventable. So I walked away with such a deep seated drive and passion for preventing and then thereby protecting those that can't protect themselves. Yeah. Because in the cyber sphere and in, in the, you know, the compute world, most people can't protect themselves. They don't know yeah. the adversary and how they think and work and execute their attacks. So they're, they're never going to be able to defend against them. So yeah. my drive really does, I believe, come from that fateful night in over Honolulu. Wow. I mean, that's such a deeply impactful experience and yeah. uh, just, you know, shift your complete life in a different di direction. Yeah, it certainly yeah. did mine. Yeah. Well, Stu, we are, uh, I mean, I feel like we could go on and on and have a uh, have this conversation uh, so enriching. Uh, maybe one last question is when you think about perspectives and things that shape the world, uh, a lot of history, uh, you know, understanding history is also related to that. So if you were to go back in time to a, a period, an era in history, what would that be and, and why? You know what it would be? Have you ever seen the movie Lucy? No. So Lucy was a uh, movie came out, I want to say in like 2014. Okay. And it had, um, uh, who was the actress in that? Um, let's see. Hold on a second. You will like this. Yeah. Scarlett Johansson. Okay. And Morgan Freeman. And yeah, incredibly, I thought the storyline was incredibly accurate. Anyway, there's a scene in there where they go backwards in time. Okay. And it goes from the current day all the way back, honestly, before the earth was formed. And mm. somehow they pull this thing off. And one of, one of the phases is where I would probably go to, which is where the early evolution of man occurred. Okay. And we all decided that working together was better than working by ourselves. There was, there was an anthropologist that just recently, I, I want to say, sort of discovered the very first evidence of civilization. And what do you mm. think the, for the telltale sign of that first, that's where I would want to be, by the way, that, that mm. moment in time where this anthropologist discovered the first healed femur bone in a human being. Interesting. If you break your femur yeah. and you're allowed for it to heal, you have to have help. Yeah. There's yeah. no, otherwise you're just, you're, you know, some animal's meal, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, two million years ago or something like this. Yeah. And, and this was the oldest on record healed femur in the history of, of anthropology. And uh, that's where I'd want to be on that day in that field somewhere when that person broke their femur wow and that, that to me would be just absolutely fascinating like what was happening there yeah how did we go from from you know all for one to one for all yeah Do you that's know I mean? very fascinating yeah and i think you know that connects the dots on our conversation when you think about individuals and teams and how do you create that uh structure that high performing team and the awareness that by ourselves, we are not going to be able to achieve as much as what we can do collectively. And I think that sort of all connects together. That's, that's fascinating. 
that's exactly it. You, there's yeah. no way you're going to be successful by yourself. Yeah. You have to find the most effective way communicating and working together with others on a mission together yeah. to achieve it in the most effective and efficient high performing way possible. And the only way to do that is with something like Wethos. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Stu, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. This was such a fascinating conversation. I thank always you. love, I always love catching up with you, buddy. Thanks so much, man. Take care. Thanks. You too. Thank you.